we are all a fairly intellectual bunch, right? <laughs> and I know some of you here like history and trivial pursuits. And so here's a question for you. Anybody knows what happened on 20th July, 1969? We just celebrated the 50th anniversary recently. 20th July, 1969, anybody? Yes. What, sorry? Yes, Neil Armstrong. He walked on the moon. Well done. I was expecting somebody a bit older. <laughs> but what many of you probably didn't know is the fact that just a few minutes before Neil Armstrong took the step on the surface of the moon, Buzz Aldrin, who was the other astronaut with him in the lunar module, celebrated communion. You see, Aldrin was an elder in his church, and he wanted to find a symbol for the first lunar landing. One expressed his feeling that what man was doing in this mission transcended electronics and computers and rockets. And so Aldrin decided to take communion on the moon, symbolizing the thought that God was revealing himself there too, as man reached out into the universe. So on that Sunday of the landing, Eldrin Road, the church back home would gather for communion while I joined them as close as possible to the same, at the same hour, taking communion inside the lunar module. All of us meaning to represent in this small way not only our local church, but the church as a whole. And so when the moment came, Eldrin opened up the little plastic packages which contained the bread and wine, and, and he recalls, I poured the wine into the chalice our church had given me, and in that one-sixth gravity of the moon, the wine curled slowly and gracefully up the side of the cup. And it was interesting to think that the very first liquid ever poured on the moon and the very first food eaten there were communion elements. I sensed especially strongly my unity with our church back home and with the church everywhere. Welcome to Christ the King. You've just joined us. We are in the last week of our four-week sermon series, and this week our topic is on work. Too many Christians live their faith for the two hours on Sunday when they go to church and remain pretty much like everyone else for the rest of the week at work or in school as if our faith has nothing to do with what we do the other 166 hours in the week. And this morning, my goal is to help you see from Scripture that your faith plays a major role in your work. And by the way, that includes your schools as well, uh, for you students out there. I want to challenge you to see how your faith should be integrated with your work and how it should be part of everything that you do at work. Buzz Aldrin, an astronaut taking communion on the moon is a good picture of that. Not all of us can be like him, but all of us can understand what it means to work faithfully as disciples of Jesus. You see, too many of us see work as a necessary evil, just to put food on the table, perhaps. And that's why we look forward to a time when we can retire and not have to work anymore. If that's how you think, I hope to challenge that and change that this morning. Well, firstly, I want to address the question, why work? Look at the passage uh, in Genesis 1, verse 26. I want us to see in this passage two things. 
The dignity of work, the necessity of work. First, the dignity of work. How often has this happened to you? You ask someone what they do for a living, and their answer is, oh, I'm just dot, 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 right? Whatever it is. Maybe they say, I'm just a janitor at a school, or I'm just a cashier at No Frills, or I'm, I'm just a homemaker. What they're perhaps communicating is that they think that what they do might not be that significant. And perhaps they feel that their work is not worthy of honour or respect. Which, by the way, is the definition of dignity. The state or quality of being worthy of honour or respect. I want to tell you this morning that that's not the Christian view. Look at verse 26. God says, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. You see, one of the things that should be very obvious to us by now is that we have a God who works. He made humans. And this is after five days of creating the universe. He rolls up his sleeves. He gets his hands dirty. In fact, our Bible opens with a God who works. He shows us that the work is not beneath him. In fact, God delights in his work. He looked at everything he created and said they were good. There is dignity in work. And man, made in God's image, is told, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so we are meant to be God's image bearers, his representatives here on earth, to rule over his creation for their flourishing, to exercise stewardship over God's creations on earth. That's work. And in fact, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, we are told that God took man and put him in a garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And so man, who was the apex of God's creation, was put to work to get dirt under his fingernails. And there's nothing undignified about that at all. Because just as God himself worked, he wants us to work. There is dignity in work. Well, you need to know that this is not the prevailing view in the ancient world. This is quite radical. The ancient Greeks, for instance, they saw work as a curse. Aristotle's idea of a worthwhile life is one where a person has the ability to live without having to work. Let the slaves do the job, do the work. And so that the elites can devote their minds to the areas of art, philosophy, and politics. But our God intended for us to know right from the start of creation, right from the very start, that there is dignity in work. Our work, whatever it might be, and as long as it's not illegal or immoral, has dignity. You're never just a teacher. You're never just a nurse or just someone who stocks the shelves at Walmart. There is dignity in your work. Next, the necessity of work. God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now, why did he do that? Well, look at verse 29, chapter 1. We see that God had told Adam and Eve that he had given them every plant yielding seed that is on the faith of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. This was to be fruit food for them. And someone's got to work on the ground to produce that food. And so Adam and Eve also had the responsibility to ensure that they were providing food for themselves. They had to work. Work was necessary. The necessity of work. And so humans were placed in a garden of Eden as God's representatives 
doing worthy, work worthy of honour and respect and working and keeping the garden to provide food for themselves. There is dignity in work. There is necessity in work. And this was always God's design for work. The way it was meant to be. But you know what happened? Human beings, we, we sinned. Adam rebelled against God. And with that, we get the futility of work. Look with me at uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. It's on page 3. Just flip over the page. Genesis 3, verse 17. Work was one of the casualties of human sin. As a consequence of Adam's sin, God said to Adam, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. There's now frustration, there's now futility in work. The ground is cursed. It won't produce food as readily as it once did. You've got to work hard at it, it'll be painful. There'll be thorns, thistles to frustrate your work. There'll be sweat and toil. A sense of futility because we are dust and to dust we will return. Like as if nothing worthwhile that we do will remain. Yes, there's still dignity, there's still necessity in work. But expect that in our work, we will also be frustrated. We will also find to be futile at times. And that's the post-Genesis 3 world that we live in today. And we can all identify with that, can't we? Or am I the only one in this room who experienced frustration at work? You work day and night on a deal and it gets to the board and then it gets shot down. You do all-nighters to get your essay completed only to find that you've misread the question and you have to redo the essay. You clean up a drug addict with an overdose in the ER only to find the same person coming in again a week later. Because of sin, there's frustration and there's futility in our work. Then Jesus came. Then Jesus came. Someone posed a question once. If God came into the world, what would he be like? For the ancient Greek, he might have come as a philosopher king. Ancient Romans, they'd be looking for a just and noble statesman. But our God came as a carpenter. Jesus came as a carpenter and affirmed the dignity of work. You perhaps think that when God was hatching out his plan for salvation to send Jesus on this earth, he must have thought, you know, what life experiences would best prepare Jesus for his later public ministry, for his role as a saviour and the Messiah of the world? Maybe being born in a priest's family would be a great help. Um, like Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. And then his time can be spent studying scripture, prayer, and daily access to the temple. But no, that's not what God did. God sent Jesus to spend more than half his working life working in a secular job as a carpenter, preparing him for his ministry later on. And being the eldest son, Jesus probably had to work and provide for the family, especially since it's likely that his father Joseph passed away before Jesus started his public ministry. Jesus came and affirmed the necessity of work. 
but there's still frustration and there's still futility in work. And so what's changed with the coming of Jesus? Well, if you've been following our sermon series, you know that something important changed. Well, two weeks back, we spoke about how Jesus' life, death, and resurrection have ushered in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is now at hand. And that changes all aspects of life, including work. We now know where we are in God's storyline. We now know how this story will end. And because eschatology drives ethics, this has powerful implication in how we will work. So how will we work? Turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. Verse 22 is on page 925 in the Black Bible. Page 925 in the Black Bible and 1088. 1088 for those with the large print Bibles. 925 and 1088. Colossians chapter 3, verse 22. Now here in this passage, we see three ways in which living as people of the kingdom of God will change how we work. Because we now have a new boss, a new reward, and a new mindset. A new boss. Look at verse 22. The first word there that Paul writes is born servants. Paul is writing to the church at Colossae. He's addressing the slaves there. He calls them born servants. You know, I always felt Paul, when he, he, he uses the term born servants, he was addressing, speaking directly to me. Because in my younger days, it wasn't that long ago, I accepted a scholarship from the Singapore government and because of that I was bonded to serve the government for eight years after I graduated from university. And so my first job I was a civil servant and I was bonded. So bond servant seems like a totally appropriate title for me. Right. But in a more important sense, I think Paul is addressing more than just slaves of the day. Hold on to your page at Colossians 3 and, and just turn uh, to Romans chapter 6 verse 20. It's on page 887 for the Black Bible, 887, and 1044 for the Large Screen Bibles. Romans chapter 6, verse 20. Paul writes, in, and let me read for you. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. That is, as in free from the control of righteousness. Look at verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Basically, Paul is saying this, we're all slaves. Either slaves to sin or slaves to righteousness. Either slaves to the world or slaves to God. And so this passage in Colossians that we just heard a moment ago is meant very much for us today as well. It has a lot to speak to us. It tells us, first of all, that we all, as Christians, now have a new boss. His name is Jesus Christ. And all we do must now be done in relation to this new boss. Go back to Colossians 3, page 925 and 1088. Look at verse 22. Paul writes there, we are to obey in everything. What's at the end of the sentence? Fearing the Lord. Verse 23. We work heartily as for the Lord. Verse 24. 
from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, you also have a master in heaven. And this is important because when you belong to Christ, when you become a Christian, other questions of status and identity becomes secondary. You become always, first and foremost, a follower of Jesus. And that trumps every other identity you may have. And of course, that has all sorts of implications. Well, to begin with, no work can be considered a drudgery or dull. Why? Because everything you do at work is an opportunity to work heartily as for the Lord. Even the most boring and most menial of tasks, you've got to be wholehearted about it. There's got to be a sense of gusto, a sense of zest in what you do. Well, secondly, uh, you may ask, what if my boss at work tells me to do something I know I shouldn't? Well, the answer is simple. Let me give you an illustration. If my departmental head tells me to do X, and I know my CEO has sent a memo around telling everyone not to do X, you know who you should obey, right? You should obey your CEO or chief executive officer because he's the most senior executive in the company. Now, Paul is telling us because we are Christians that there's someone even more senior than your CEO, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the CCEO, the chief of chief executive officers. And so you have a new boss. Well, next you have a new reward. I worked in a company back in Singapore when it was common to backload our compensation at work. What do I mean by that? The pay that I get each month is okay. Not fantastic, but sufficient. But it's not the monthly pay that excites me when I'm thinking of how much I'll earn in a year. You see, all companies in Singapore have to pay what we call the 13th month in December by law. And so for everyone, in December you get two months pay. December and the 13th month. But on top of that, my company also pays a bonus in December based on performance. And our bonuses can range from zero to 12 months. So if I do well enough, I get up to 12 months bonus, the equivalent of a whole year's worth of my monthly pay. And so in December, I get my pay for December, I plus the 13th month, plus possibly up to 12 months worth of my monthly pay. You, you can imagine that's quite a substantial sum. We like to backload our bonuses because it gives the management greater flexibility in linking our compensation to the performance of the company and to the performance of the individual. And so you can imagine what happens every year. Everyone looks forward to December. And very few people would think of quitting the company once we're in the last quarter of the year. Makes sense, right? You've come so close. Now, why am I telling you this? I'm telling you this because if you are a Christian, your reward, your compensation changes. It's going to be heavily backloaded. Not just 12 months, zillions of months. Look at verse 24, chapter 3 of Colossians. From the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. From the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Well, to begin with, slaves don't get inheritance. 
So Paul is saying here that they are being treated more than just slaves. Then there's a future element to the reward that we look forward to. That's why it's inheritance, right? And so the reward that excites us is not the one that we get now, but the one in future for us, kept for us. And this immediately raises two points. Well, first of all, what is this inheritance that I will receive from the Lord as my reward? Well, in short, the answer is, it's the kingdom. That's why we have Jesus and the New Testament authors talking about inheriting the kingdom, the kingdom of God. And if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50, for instance, Paul, Paul writes, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. And you all know all about the kingdom, don't you? You just heard a whole sermon on it two weeks ago. Well, secondly, how should, how should that change how I view my reward at work now? Well, like the monthly pay that I spoke about earlier on, not overly excited. Excited, yes, but not overly excited. It's important that we get this right. Because it frees you from the burden of thinking that your reward now is all that matters. That your reward now is what defines you. Do you earn a six-figure salary? Have you just been promoted? And so on. You're freed from defining your self-worth, your identity this way. You're also freed to work hard. Never get a pay increase that you think you deserve and still be happy. Because you see, your eyes are on the reward in the future. The inheritance, as First Peter puts it, that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That's the reward that your eyes is on. And finally, it frees you to be genuinely happy when someone else in your office does well and gets promoted. In fact, you want to be the someone who helps others do well. Can you see how countercultural that is? Office politics. The only office politics that you engage in is scheming how to help someone keep their job, get promoted, or get a much-needed pay increase. You'll be like Ebenezer Scrooge. You know, in Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol? Blind faces? Okay. I'm dating myself, probably. Scrooge, right? He repents and changed overnight after he had a visit from the three spirits of Christmas. And he, he used to be that, that cold-hearted miser. But now he's changed because of that. And what is he doing? He's scheming to see how he can give away his money and help those around him. You have a new reward. Next, a new mindset. Look at verse 22. Obey your boss in everything. Really? Everything? Yes, everything. Unless it contradicts something that your new boss, your CCEO, tells you. And don't just obey them. Paul says, do it not by way of eye service or as a people pleaser, but with sincerity of heart. Obeying by way of eye service basically means that you serve your boss only when they are looking. And if they are not looking, well, you just go through the motion. And you don't serve as a people pleaser which means that you don't serve 
like a hypocrite, phoning before your boss when you're around, trying to carry their favor. In short, friends, no matter what your station in life, you are always to work with integrity. Look at verse 2 and 3. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Well, the word translated heartily is a Greek word that means from the soul. And so we are to work wholeheartedly, not just doing the minimum that will get us by. Charles Spurgeon, that well-known preacher, once asked a young girl who served as a domestic helper what evidence she could give of having become a Christian. And she meekly answered, I now sweep under the mats. I now sweep under the mats. And so it's about integrity. It's about working wholeheartedly. And related to what I just said, I'd like to just address an aspect of work that I think many Christians have bought into, but I, which I don't think is necessarily biblical. It's this idea of working to achieve your potential. How many times have you heard someone telling you that? You are to be the best that you can be, the best that you're capable of, realize your full potential. And that's driven many people to work really hard, to overwork, and to sacrifice a lot of things along the way. Well, you may have noticed that God is often not that interested in what you do. Nothing in our passage today tells us that we need to be a doctor, or teacher, or soldier, and so on. It doesn't even say that you have to be a pastor. God is mostly interested in how you do your work. And that's what our passage this morning is all about. Are you working with integrity and are you working wholeheartedly? Are you working as to the Lord? You see, what is important to God is your character, your Christ-likeness. God is not especially concerned with what I do, but who I am. He's not as interested in what I've achieved, but who I'm really serving. So I may not be the best chemist that I can be because my child has special needs. I may not be the best software engineer that I can be because I'm committed to meeting with my church family and serving them, or perhaps serving the woman with unexpected pregnancies in a pregnancy care center. Or perhaps I choose not to move into management, but instead continue to serve as a cashier because I realize and I recognize that the opportunities for gospel work is greater at a checkout counter than in the back office. So I don't realize my full potential. Why? Because there are New Testament imperatives that I want to obey, such as taking time to make disciples of my neighbors, such as setting aside time to prepare and teach in a children's ministry, which we hope to have shortly, and so on. So have you been brought up to think that you must realize your full potential at work? Because if you have, I don't think you've been taught what the Bible says. As someone once said, I'm sure Jesus worked as a carpenter with integrity, with respect for authority, with patience, with kindness, and wholeheartedly too. But I have no reason to think his work transformed the Judean furniture industry. And I'm pretty sure that he could have done that if he chose to be the best carpenter he could be. You see the point? You see, too many of us have bought into the idea that we need to aim to be the best that we can be in our work. We need to realize our full potential. So we spend all our lives sacrificing opportunities to serve God and His people, 
sacrificing opportunities, opportunities to build spiritually healthy families, trying to climb up the corporate ladder, only to realize one day when we finally reached the top that the ladder was leaning on the wrong wall. God is not as interested in what you achieve as He is in who you are. He's more interested in your Christ-likeness. Let me conclude. I hope this sermon series has helped you recognize the storyline of the Bible. More importantly, I hope you see now where you are situated in that storyline. And of course, you know now how the story will end. As followers of Jesus Christ, we look forward to the day when we will be in a kingdom as one of God's people, in God's place, under God's rule. We look forward to the day when death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. We look forward to the day when we will be seated at the table of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, isn't that great news? This story is infinitely better than anything that the world can offer us. And the best part of it is that it's true. And if that's the future that we can expect, and if eschatology drives ethics, this story where we, are, we already know the ending has a lot to say about how we live our lives today, especially in our workplace, in our schools, where we spend the bulk of our waking moments. And so I just want to end with two questions. I know this is a little bit like the Lord of the Rings, isn't it? You think it's finished when Frodo gets on the boat at the end? And then the movie goes on for another 20 minutes, uh. right? My first question, how are you at work? How are you in school? Seriously, if I were to ask your boss, your colleague, or your classmates, what would they say about you? Are you known as the one who's most likely to grumble and complain about how things are? Are you the company gossip? Or would you be considered an exemplary worker in the office and in the school? The one that people would naturally go to if they are looking for help or leadership in a project? Are you working as for the Lord? Even if no one's looking at you, are you working with integrity and wholeheartedly because you recognize that you're working in the presence of God? Well, some of you, some of young adults in this room come to our place to watch a movie once a month. We call it Real Faith. And one of the movies that we watched earlier this year was The Dead Poet Society. And those of you who have watched that movie starring Robin Williams will remember a Latin phrase that he taught his class. Anybody remember? What's that? Anybody? No? Carpe diem. Carpe diem. Right? Or cease the day. Cease the day. It's about urging us to make the most of the present time and give little thought to the future. We were discussing the movie later on, after the movie, and, and I remember saying to all of them that a better Latin phrase to remember is Coram Deo, Coram Deo, which means in the presence of God. You see, Coram Deo is very different from Carpe Diem. To live Coram Deo is to know what the future is going to be, and because of that, we live our life, entire life now in the presence of God, under the authority of God, to the glory of God. And I think this captures pretty well the essence of our Colossians passage this morning. Coram Deo, live and work in the presence of God. 
wouldn't that also challenge our idea about what success at work or in school looks like for us? You see, success is no longer about running faster than everyone else. It isn't even about running the best time that you can, how fast you rise in a corporation or how big a paycheck is. These are not indications of success in God's overall scheme of things. Rather, it's about being faithful to God's call for each one of us to be Christ-like at our workplace, to work with integrity, and to work wholeheartedly as to the Lord. Coram Deo, in the presence of God. And so are you working as if you have a new boss, a new reward, and a new mindset? Will you take time this weekend and honestly reflect on how you are at work and in school? And if there are any areas that need changing, will you resolve to put it right this week? Will you do that? Second question. How is your ministry at work? Or in school? How is your ministry? In fact, have you ever been asked this question? I was just back in Singapore recently, and I get asked this question a lot. How's your ministry in Toronto? And I tell them, I'm excited to tell them what's happening at Christ the King and what's happening. I get asked because they know I now work in a church. But when was the last time that someone asked you how your ministry is at RBC, at U of T, at Mount Sinai Hospital, or Reunion Island Coffee, or Starbucks? You see, I think our neglect of the workplace as a place of ministry is a tragedy. We spend more time at a workplace with non-Christians than any other place. There are few places where a non-Christian could and should see the difference that Christ makes in our lives than the work in the workplace. We are encouraged to develop relationships with people to share the gospel with them, but relationships already exist in the workplace. We are encouraged to look for the common ground with non-Christians, but we already have that in the workplace. As someone puts it, we are encouraged to go out and fish in the pools and the puddles while we are sitting in a lake full of fish eight hours a day at the workplace, in our schools. So let's make it a point to ask each other how our ministry is doing in our workplace. Because ministry is not just done in church. It's not just done by the clergy. It needs to be done in the workplace too. It needs to be done in school. As a church, we pray for a pastor in Myanmar and the people that he's ministering to. He gets sprayed for at least once a month up here. I'm really glad we do that. We even know some of the people by name in his congregation. And they are about 15,000 kilometers away. I've never met a pastor before. But here I am at 415 Spadina with all of you and I don't know the name of your colleagues or your classmates here in Toronto that I need to pray for. Think about it. We complain about corporate greed. We complain about a bureaucratic public sector. We complain about corrupt politicians. But as John Stott rightly puts it, if the meat rot, don't blame the meat. Blame the sword. See, we are meant to be the sword at the workplace. We can and we should do more on our part to stop the rod. Will you pray about how you can do that? 
I do have some suggestions. To begin with, write down the names of three colleagues or fellow students that you know God wants you to pray for to develop a deeper relationship with them this year. Think of something you can do for them. Buy them coffee, ask them out for a meal, whatever. Maybe invite them to read the Bible one-on-one with you. And if you need help on that, we've got a very helpful resource over here. And also, would you try to locate Christians in your workplace and start a weekly prayer time together during the lunch break? Will you equip yourself to give an answer winsomely to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you? See, I do believe that equipping all of us for ministry in a workplace is the church's best hope for bringing the gospel to a world desperately in need of God's love. So here's the deal. If you're willing to start a Bible study group or a one-on-one Bible reading group at your workplace or in school, and you need help to get it started, I'll be glad to help you and even join you at your workplace or in school if necessary and if that's possible. Well, I do that every week already with a bunch of guys in the city. So I'll be very happy to do that for you as well. You see, my hope is that all of us here will take an interest in each other's ministry at a workplace and in a school. Ask each other how our ministry is doing. Pray for one another's colleagues and classmates. Let us start this practice here at Christ the King. Let us be known as people who take our ministry at a workplace and in a school seriously. So as we go back to our workplace or our schools this week, let us all not be like Jacob in Genesis chapter 28 where we are told, And then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. That would be a tragedy if God is in our workplace and we did not know it. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.